Well, Father, we are just grateful that we can come together and study your word as a community. And Lord, this correspondence between Paul and Timothy has just been so instructive for us, instructive about church leadership, but also instructive about how we respond to church leadership and even the profound calling that you have for each and every one of us. I pray that this final message will really help us to see um, our role to play in the transmission of the ministry from generation to generation. In Christ's name, amen. Well, during uh, my second year of college at the University of Kansas, who beat Texas last night, I, uh, I had a paradigm-shifting moment. I was in my macroeconomics class, and they were explaining the relationship between the gross domestic product and population. And they said something that I had to actually ask and say, can you say that again to make sure I read it right? And what the professor was explaining is that as population increases, the gross domestic product increases as well, even more so. I thought that was kind of strange. And, and part of it was I was thoroughly catechized by the environmental movement. I was on the debate team in high school, and, and every year you talk about a different topic. And my, my final year, we talked about the environment. And one of the big cases that people were advocating for was population control. It, it was this idea that humans are almost a parasite on the planet, that the more humans you have, the more resources they consume, and the greater the stress on the environment. So if you control the population, then you reduce the pollution. And, and they'd always have the images of a shantytown in South Africa or a, a, a slum in Delhi. New Delhi. And so that was proof, and it kind of made sense to me, right? You have a big pie here, and the more people who want a piece of the pie means everyone gets a smaller share. But what they explained to me in this economics class is that when you have more people, you have more pies. That people are producers, that they are an asset. Right? I think all of us are getting an economics lesson in that right now. When not enough people work, we all suffer. Humans are assets. And that got me thinking about um, just the church and how people in the church often view themselves. I think in the explosion of the megachurch in the 80s and 90s, there was this idea that the congregants are a group of consumers, right? They they go to church, they're always looking for the programs to meet their needs. Does this church offer friendship possibilities for me? Something for the kids? Do I feel good after I leave? Right? They are consumers, and, and many churches kind of cater towards that. And, and so what happens is that the, the congregants see themselves as consumers. They're, they're sheep, right? That's the flock, and, and sheep are good to be shaved and eaten. Right? It's not good to be a sheep sometimes. And so these congregants are to come fill the pews and uh, their assets insofar as they give to the church, but the real work is done by the shepherds. And so what can happen is 
you almost have like the special class of Christians of you have the shepherds. These are the ones who do the work of the ministry. These are the paid professionals to execute what can't be done by the sheep. And one of the words that they love to hear is, I could never do that. They think job security, great. And so sometimes you, we begin to identify the church with the shepherd more than the sheep. For instance, R.C. Sproul was a pastor. Do you know his church's name? I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to look it up afterwards, right? But you know what I'm saying? There's a celebrity pastor culture and there's a professional pastor culture. And, and if you're not careful, it almost diminishes the role of the sheep. Now, shepherding is a wonderful analogy. Uh, Jesus is the good shepherd. It speaks of how he leads, he feeds, and he protects the flock. And, and he has delegated this role of shepherding to the elders. Paul says in uh, Acts 20, 28, and he's speaking to the Ephesian elders who would be present in the Ephesian audience of 2 Timothy. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so, yes, God selects some men to be shepherds, but we can't press this shepherding analogy too far. You might hear phrases like, sheep bite, sheep need to be led, sheep can't heal themselves, and need a shepherd to, to rescue them. And it's almost, uh, it's almost as if you can look down on the sheep as leaderless lemmings who need the shepherd to guide them. But that is not the vision of Paul for the church. Granted, the shepherding does a good job of telling shepherds what they must do, but, but Paul, when he speaks of the church, he speaks of the body of Christ. That every person has a role. That when he looks at the church, what he sees is an assembly of assets. An assembly of assets. Every one of you has a larger role to play. You are not sheep, although you are in a certain sense. Do you know what I'm saying? We don't want to press that too much. Too, too far or diminish it. But you have a role to play. This is an assembly of assets. And, and at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit on his ministry and how, how he sees people. And these are the final words of 2 Timothy. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before me in winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. So we see a list of names beginning with Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila. This is the famous husband and wife team. They're, they're mentioned six times in the New Testament, and in four occasions, Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila. And, and there's a lot of speculation about it. Like maybe Priscilla had the stronger personality. Maybe she was the one who was more gifted in ministry. Uh, perhaps she was of more renown. Or perhaps Aquila was so deferential that he was always exalted and put his wife first. We don't really know. But what we do know is that there were tent makers who served alongside of Paul and were very effective in ministry. Uh, we also 
know that they're the ones who pulled Apollos aside, right? Apollos was a great orator. He got a lot of things right, but he got some things wrong. And so Priscilla and Aquila said, Apollos, can you come here? And together they talked through certain theology, uh, certain theological corrections that he needed and Apollos and the church was better off. They were assets to the church. We also read about the household of Anisiphorus. Anisiphorus was someone who traveled from Ephesus to Rome to refresh Paul. And his household gladly sent him along. They went for a long period of time without their father, husband, friend, the leader, service of Anisiphorus. They sacrificed for the sake of Paul. They allowed themselves to be used to minister to him. They were assets. You read about how Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Both of them accompanied Paul a certain portion of the journey, but in the providence of God, they were left behind to be assets to other churches. Verse 21, do your best to come before winter. This is a personal call to Timothy to be with Paul. And this is where it gets really interesting. Number one, you see that Timothy is clearly an asset to Paul. Paul wants to talk to him. He wants to be ministered to by him. And for him to go to Rome, he would have to do it soon. Because once the winter comes, the sea lanes close, it would be nearly impossible to travel, and Paul doesn't have confidence that he'd live much longer than the winter. But what that also means is for Timothy to go to Rome, who has to leave Ephesus. He has to leave Ephesus. Okay, hold on to that thought. Moving on. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. These were the Roman Christians. And remember last week we talked about how at Paul's first defense, no one stood by him except for the Lord, and the Lord was more than enough. And Paul says, do not charge this to their account. Well, Paul meant it. You see that he still has a warm relationship with these Roman Christians. He did not hold their sin against them. He was more than willing to reconcile. They were precious to him. They were assets. Then he says, the Lord be with your spirit. Your singular, Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. And then he says, grace be with you. And in the Greek, you really means you all. This is a, a, a double doxology, a double doxology. He says, Lord be with your spirit, Timothy, and then grace be with you all. This is a recognition that this letter to Timothy was not private correspondence. It was not just pastor to pastor, shepherd to shepherd communication. It was actually something that was intended to be presented to the entire congregation. Because Paul knew that Timothy had to keep on perpetuating the ministry. That is one of the themes that comes out in this letter. He also knew that that church was going to be without Paul and they were going to be without Timothy. 
they're going to be out with go they're going to be without two prominent pastors the church was going to have to function without Timothy in his temporary absence which would be at least 6 months and so he asked for God's spirit to be with Timothy and God's grace to be with the whole congregation Paul didn't see the church of Ephesus as Timothy's church it was the Lord's church and it was the assembly of assets. And as you kind of read through 2 Timothy, you see that many of the commands that were meant for Timothy were intended to reach beyond him to the congregation as well. And so when I look around, I, I look at this church, and, and this church is not my church, it's obviously the Lord's church, but it is an assembly of assets. The greatest earthly asset, right, greatest earthly asset at Flint Hills Bible Church is its people. It's his people, right? You, you know the little nursery rhyme, right? Here's a church here. I can't do the finger motions, but you guys know it. You open it up and here are the people. It's the people. We have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, we got, have God's revelation, but ultimately... The ministry and the perpetuation of gospel ministry is executed and done through the faithful service of the assets of the church. And as I kind of look back on this, I, I kind of reread uh, 2 Timothy with this concept in mind, right? Because you'd think it's just for Timothy the whole way until you get to the last sentence and it's clear that this is actually for the entire congregation. And it's not that they know how to respond to Timothy because Timothy's going to be gone is that they know how to perpetuate the ministry. And so I want to help everyone here today to, to see yourself as God sees you, as the greatest earthly asset to the church. I want to give you three reasons why. Number one, you are precious. You are precious. Don't worry, I'm not going to get all Hallmark card on you. I'll explain what that means. But you are precious. starts with P. You have a purpose. And you perpetuate. So you're at, you are assets because you are precious. You have a purpose and you perpetuate. So we'll look at the first one. You are precious. When God builds his church, he builds it with the labor of redeemed and precious saints who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Now, I look at it this way. When Paul does ministry, he is a spiritual prospector. He is a spiritual prospector. I'm going to go ahead and take you to 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they should obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he is talking about the elect. These are the called out ones. 
And the idea is he's kind of like that prospector during the California gold rush. He kind of covers all that area near the Sierra Nevada foothills. And, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to find gold. He sacrificed. He looks and he labors, but it's all worth it because of the commodity that he's looking for. And so Paul is willing to undergo untold suffering because he's convinced that there's the elect out there and he spends his life panning for gold. So what makes the elect so precious? Now some of you might think, well, isn't it obvious? I mean, you know, don't mean to brag about myself, but I have a lot to offer. God could use people like me on his team. And he can go through all these reasons why I'm good with people, I have money, I'm able to do all these things, people seem to follow my direction. That is not why. That is not why you are precious. In fact, Timothy makes it clear that in and of yourself, you are not precious. Don't believe me? Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, the first item on the list is lovers of self. And many uh, theologians, commentators believe that all of the following attributes are an exposition of someone who loves himself. Somebody who's arrogant loves himself. People who are greedy love themselves, right? And, and we live in a day and age where loving yourself is accepted. We've inverted the Westminster Catechism to say the chief end of man is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. Look at me, fit body. How does my outfit look today? Give me likes. I need some time for self-care. You know, it's just really hard right now and I'm being triggered by the whole world. So just give me some peace. You're not meeting my needs. You need to adjust your whole worldview to accommodate my sensibilities and how I see myself. I'm feeling very threatened by you right now, right? I mean, you look at that and we're all like, eh. But truth be known, we all think we're pretty much a big deal. You go through the list. And when you love yourself, well, the contrast is a lover of God. Either you believe you exist for God's glory or you believe that God in some way and his creation exists for your glory. You can't have it both ways. And so our natural disposition is to love ourselves, to expect other people to love ourselves and get angry when they don't respond the way we want them to do. And so that is what Timothy is dealing with. And that is all of our default disposi um, dispositions, right? Is to love ourselves. 
Well, Paul, as he's talking about what he's willing to do to suffer, he tells Timothy in 2, 1 through 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us, we did not save ourselves, and called us, notice how Paul's expanding the reach, not just you, Timothy, not just me, but all of us, to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. The gift of salvation is a result of a divine call, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God did not look into the future and say, I can't help falling in love with him. She is just simply irresistible to me. He did not love you because of what you offer him. His love is not anchored in you or your performance or your attributes or how you're made. Your love is anchored in his desire to love you. He chose to love you. And he redeemed you, as we see in verse 10, which, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so Jesus was sent by God. He took on human flesh. He lived the life that you should have lived. And when he died on the cross, the anger and wrath that was intended for us was placed upon Jesus Christ. So that if you believe in him and become his follower, death and the power of death and eternal death has been abolished. You can be right with God the Lord. And, and even though this world will try to seduce you away from that reality or try to pressure you into buckling, into thinking that this world is all that there is, he will continue to protect. Jesus will continue to protect his investment. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so, Jesus, God, before you even existed, decided, I want that one. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. He drew you to himself, and he is going to protect his investment forever, beginning here. So Christian, you are precious. You were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Now you look at the difference between a $1 bill and a $100 bill. Why is one worth more than the other? Same printing cost, same paper cost. Do you know why one is more valuable than the other? Because the U.S. Treasury says so. That's it. The U.S. Treasury says the $100 bill is worth $100 and this $1 bill is worth one. Why are you precious? Because God said so. God declared it so. God redeemed you with the precious blood of Christ. That is why you are precious. 
And in your redeemed and precious state, there's also a, a purpose for you, where he redeemed you with a purpose. You have a purpose, point two. If you look at gold, for instance, why is gold so valuable? There's a number of reasons. One, there's not enough of it to go around. It's relatively rare. It does not uh, corrode or, or tarnish. You can manufacture it into transferable units like coins or, or jewelry, right? There is, uh, there is a function to it, a utility to it that makes it precious as well. So your preciousness is not just the blood of Christ, but it's also the, the, the fact that you have a purpose, a unique thing that you can do that no one else can do. You have some abilities to do what nobody else can do. And that is to build up the church of Christ. After rehearsing Timothy's salvation and the joy of their relationship, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6-7, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So he's reminding Timothy that, remember this gift that I gave you. In 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift that you have, which is, was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is his spiritual gift. God gave Timothy a supernatural ability to serve him. Now, having that ability is not enough. He had to fan it into flame. If you know a little bit about fire, right? There's three elements that you need. You need heat, you need fuel, and you need oxygen. And so if a flame is dying, you give it the fuel and then you fan it into flame. And that is what Paul is calling Timothy to do. And we can speculate that there are some reasons why, that, that there might have been some fear on Timothy's part. You know, there's been other instances where, where the church is ornery, they're not behaving themselves, some are teaching a false doctrine, Paul comes in and he regulates. You, you're out of the church. You, you're out of the church. And Timothy might feel vulnerable like he's not able to, to do that. Who am, I, who am I compared to Paul? And other people might say, you're no Paul. We know that there was false teaching in their midst. People were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. Whatever the reason, Paul makes it very clear, is you need to fan the flame. You need to do what you have been called to do. He says in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He is not to be ashamed by the gospel, but proclaim it, proclaim it, proclaim it, even if it costs him. He is told him for to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. God has given him a spiritual gift to be a preacher of God's word, to equip the saints for the ministry. And no amount of suffering is to stop him from doing it. He is to continually fan the flame. Now, you might look at this and think, well, good thing I'm not called to be a preacher. 
But notice he argues you need to fan the flame of the gift that's within you. So here's the question. Do you have a spiritual gift? The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God, who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. As I look around, you all are assets because the Holy Spirit has not only called you, Jesus has not only redeemed you, but he has given each one of you a manifestation of the Spirit that can be used for the common good of building up the body of Christ. You are an asset because God has equipped you with a purpose. And it's not just preaching. You look at Anisiphorus. In 2 Corinthians 1, 16-18, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you all well know of all the service he rendered in Ephesus. Right here Paul is in his darkest hour. He's languishing alone by himself, probably discouraged. There's a knock on the door. And it's Nisiphorus, refreshing him, encouraging him, serving him. He may not have been a preacher of God's word, but by him using his spiritual gift, he propped up a man who needed some encouragement so that he can stay faithful to using his spiritual gift. I mean, when you look at this church, we are a, a spiritual ecosystem, right? All of us consume and give, consume and give. When somebody volunteers for the nursery, they free up somebody from the nursery to uh, maybe get promoted to teach their kids who just graduated in the children's ministry. And when somebody does that, they free up somebody from the children's ministry to perhaps help out the needs with security. And when somebody does that, somebody on the security team might be more free to help back up teach for a Sunday school class. I mean, it's all interconnected. When we use our spiritual gifts, we keep the spiritual ecosystem going when all of us see ourselves as assets, we have a, a purpose. And, and ultimately, what happens is we begin to perpetuate the ministry. We perpetuate the ministry. You perpetuate the ministry. And this is really the heart of what Paul is developing here in 2 Timothy. One of the great passages is 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I remember preaching the sermon, Passing the Torch. And we talked about the Olympic flame that was basically started by some solar mirror in the temple of Helena, I believe. And they light the torch, 
and they hand it off from runner to runner to runner. And so here you have, you have Paul and then Timothy and the people that Timothy's supposed to teach and the people that they're supposed to teach. There's four generations. And one of the things that you see is that Paul is looking for runners, but he's also making sure that the original flame of the gospel is passed on from generation to generation. He says in 2 Timothy 1.14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Right? There is uh, a guarding, a, a something you are protecting. If I get a brand new bright red Ford F-150 and I loan you the keys, I'm entrusting it to you. It is not to be returned with a big dent or a scratch. It's to maintain its same integrity. When you are entrusted with the gospel, there is a guarding of the integrity. That is why Paul tells Timothy in 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, cutting it straight, making sure that you're accurately representing the gospel as it was presented to you. And to resist the urge to contour it, contour it or, or change it or adjust it to the culture. I mean, Timothy had that pressure. Paul tells him in 2.16 through 18, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are Hamanaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are setting the faith of some. Don't take the bait. Protect the gospel. Protect the word. So there's this idea of maintaining the integrity of the torch to perpetuate the ministry. But he also says, teach these things to others so that they can teach and they can teach. He is to develop other runners. One of the great passages on the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's not only a statement about the nature of Scripture, but also an implicit command for Timothy to do all these things to equip these men of God to pass the torch. Right? The Word perpetuates itself. You see, you can't transmit the Word effectively unless you believe in the Word. The people who can effectively pass the torch are people who believe it themselves. You see, you guys are precious because you believe in the gospel. You're precious because you have a purpose, which is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to grow this church so that together we can do so, and you perpetuate it as well. If you have a church of non-Christians, even if they get the gospel right, they can't perpetuate the ministry. It will be lost in transmission. Only truly redeemed people can continue it to the next generation. And, and so as Paul pens his farewell letter, as he summons Timothy to his side, there is a complicit command for this church to continue the ministry. They may be without two of their pastors, but that doesn't mean that they can't do what they're called to do 
These are not pastor-centered churches. This is a church of assets, an assembly of assets. Paul had faith in the people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, who have been given a gift by the Holy Spirit, and have been given a, uh, a commission to perpetuate the ministry. Now, when we started this series on 2 Timothy, our church was in a little bit of a crisis, wasn't it? We were coming off of COVID. Many of you who carried the burden of ministry are being burdened by the ministry. We had a number of people who were just kind of on the brink of, of kind of burning out because they stepped up during COVID and they couldn't quite keep the pace. In addition, we had a lot of people who, well, not a lot, but we had a number of key families move away. Some moved on, never to return, and so the labor pool shrunk. And on top of that, two of our associate pastors went to another ministry. Pastor Alvin decided to become the senior pastor at a church in Smithville, Missouri. Pastor Tyson took a church outside of Peoria, Illinois. And so that was really what we were facing. Do you guys remember that? And they left on good terms for good reasons. I always tell myself those churches needed them more than we did. But if you had a pastor-centered approach to ministry, that would have been a catastrophe because what do we do? Jesus, when he looks at people, he doesn't see consumers. He sees laborers. Remember in Matthew 9, 37-38, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so I, I believe the Lord answered that prayer where I have been deeply encouraged, the elders have been deeply encouraged by the level of commitment and sacrifice that you guys made. Many of you signed up for another tour of duty even though you're wiped out. Many of you signed up to support some of the ministries that we we're thinking about cutting even though you had no idea what it meant. And when you find out it meant massive child care, you didn't flinch. Uh, many of you seniors really stepped up. Uh, I, of course, I don't want to call you seniors. I guess that's an insult to seniors. But, you know, older saints who are more mature and godly than everybody else. There you go. <laughs> but really, the Holy Spirit kind of reached down. And, and in many ways, it kind of mobilized our church where you were shown to be the greatest asset to the ministry. And one of the uh, analogies I used when I started this message was the ship of Theseus. Right, the ship of Theseus, Theseus was, a, was a Greek hero who went to Crete, who went to Crete and defeated the Minotaur, and then he you know, rowed his ship back and docked it in the port of Athens. And over a period of time, they noticed that one of the planks got, became rotten, and so they replaced the plank. Then another one did, and then another one did, and then another one did, and eventually they, they redid the whole ship. None of the original planks remained, and one of the debates was, is it still the same ship? So when you look at Flint Hills Bible Church, right, given a long enough window of time, all of the planks will be replaced. But will it be the same ship? Well, it will be 
as long as we stay faithful to the Lord, faithful to the gospel, and the Holy Spirit dwells in this church. And what the Lord will do is he's going to continue to raise up more assets to replace those who, in God's providence, move on, who are called to another location, who are called to another church, who are called uh, home to be with the Lord. And for this to take place successfully is really up to the assets who are in the church. And so I guess my question you know, for you, and again, you all have been amazing, but maybe some people are on the outside kind of looking in. Do you see yourself as an asset? Do you see yourself as called to ministry here? Do you see yourself as part of the spiritual ecosystem that allows us to do what we're called to do? I mean, that is how God sees you. God has a purpose for your life. He sees you as a, an incredible blessing to this church, as someone with tremendous potential. He has given you a spiritual gift. He has redeemed you. You are precious in His sight, and He has a purpose for you. And when you live in alignment with all those realities, it is thrilling, it is fulfilling, knowing that you're doing exactly what God made and called you to do. So brothers and sisters, see yourself as more than just sheep. You are an assembly of assets. You are the greatest earthly asset for this church. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the work that you've done in this congregation. We thank you for how you have equipped them to serve in a variety of ways. I thank you for all the volunteers and people who have really sacrificed greatly to perpetuate the ministry of this church. And I pray that they will be encouraged as they should be, that they're doing exactly what you have called them to do. And Lord, as much as we are grateful for the shepherds and the leaders, we, we all understand that this church would not be what it is apart from the faithful labor of the congregation. And we pray that we will all seek to value and honor their sacrifice and commitment. In Christ's name, amen.